of death. What does that mean? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What are we really talking about here? Of death. Some people will say they are afraid of death. What do they mean? What does it mean to be afraid of death? Death is a weirdly ambiguous term. It is not as straightforward as one might think. I say this is someone who has seen a lot of death. My name is Tony, and I'm a chaplain. Hi. Between the time I spent as a hospital chaplain and now as a hospice chaplain, deaths and dead bodies that I have stood witness to can be measured in the hundreds. And even though being around dead people is the smallest part of what I do, it is the number one thing people assume I do. In the eyes of many people, chaplains in the hospital or hospice setting are nothing more than friendly grim reapers. I cannot tell you the number of times I have introduced myself to a family member in a waiting room or call a family member on the phone, and the moment I tell them I'm a chaplain, their immediate response is, oh no, to which I respond, when I realize their assumption, oh, no, 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 everything is fine. I'm just checking to see if you need anything. It's because of spending time talking to people about death before a person dies and sitting with families with the patient as the patient dies and sitting with the dead patient after the family has left, waiting for the mortuary to arrive, that I have come to recognize the ambiguity of the term death. When we talk about death, we're really talking about two things, dying and being dead. These are two related but very different things. Dying is what happens before you become dead. Being dead is what happens after you've successfully completed dying. The experience of the two, though, is profoundly different. Being alone in a room with a dead body can be described in many ways. But stillness is the one that always stands out to me. There's a profound and unyielding stillness. A dead body is still in a way that feels unnatural. We're so used to the way a body moves on a micro level, the breathing, the little ways it shifts when we're trying to keep it from moving, that it feels very weird when it suddenly is not doing any of those things. Being alone around a dead body is strangely peaceful in a creepy sort of way. <clears throat> But where being dead is stillness and peace. Dying is not usually either of those things. Dying can be made comfortable. Give someone enough pain meds and they will likely not be aware of anything. But that doesn't mean the body is having a good time. More often, the body is struggling to breathe. There's agitation related to pain or neurological damage, or both. And it can get so bad that they need to be sedated just to minimize the suffering. There can be noises and secretions, and agitation so violent restraints are needed. Being dead is very easy, but dying can be horrifying and terrifyingly difficult. Because of this difference, I want to ask the question again. What do we mean when we use the word death? As I said, I spend a lot of time talking to patients and their families about death. Because of the Grim Reaper stereotype, this is assumed when people find out I'm a chaplain. The next thing that is assumed is that I spend all my time generally doing three things primarily. 
talking about religion and spiritual things, praying with every patient, getting people to not be afraid of being dead. There are a number of other assumptions as well, but these are the main three. However, those assumptions are not as accurate as some might think. When talking about death, I find the patient and the family to be in two different places. In hospice work, almost every patient I have who is aware of their coming death has virtually no fear of being dead. They're not worried about whatever afterlife they believe in, if they are spiritual in nature. They're fine with what they believe about that. Those few who are atheists are not usually worried about being dead either. They don't believe in a hell and have accepted their view of the circle of life. The patient is not concerned about being dead. They are, however, usually afraid of what dying will be like. Will it hurt? How much suffering will they have? How indignant will it be? And the further along the process of dying they get, the more they wish they were already dead because they're losing their autonomy and their self-sufficiency. Their agency is gone, their dignity disappears as their incontinence becomes routine and they can no longer care for any of their needs. They want to die by that point and the most frequent question I get from them is, how come I'm not dead yet? Why won't God let me die? The families are on a different journey. Sometimes they worry about what the existential nature of the afterlife is as it relates to their loved one, but usually they are upset about the idea of their father or mother or whomever being gone. Their initial focus is often on losing someone valuable to them. But as time goes on, the focus shifts from that to a place where they recognize that the longer their loved one exists in this dying state, the more they are suffering and they can't stand to see it. And soon they start struggling with guilt over the fact that they love their parent or sibling or child, but at the same time wish they would just die so that they could have to, so they didn't have to continue suffering as they are. Calling their grief complex is a profound understatement. But rarely are any of my hospital patients and families actually concerned with being dead and what happens next. They don't fear that. They fear the dying. So when David, in Psalms 23, 4, says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. What is it he's talking about? Is David worried about being dead? Or is David worried about dying? To paraphrase the verse, as David speaks to God, he is really saying, Even though death is everywhere around me, and it's terrifying, I won't fear it, because you're here. I'm not alone. Well, sort of. If one is so inclined to read it in the Hebrew like a good Bible nerd, it says something slightly different. The word there is not death. The Hebrew word is salmawet. It means shadow, darkness, gloom, blackness. So a more literal translation then would be, even though I walk to the valley of shadows or the valley of darkness, I will fear no evil. And this changes the perspective of the verse in subtle but important ways. Because now we see that David doesn't see fear in being dead. What David is recognizing is that it's the part before being dead, the dying, the uncertainty in the shadows and darkness where bad and horrible things can happen. That's the part that can be terrifying. 
And he completes it by saying, But God, as long as I'm not alone, as long as I have you with me, I won't be afraid of it. I want to point out something very important here. David does not say that things won't get bad. He simply says that there is comfort in not being alone. And in general, this sounds wonderful, doesn't it? As long as God is with me, as long as I'm not alone, I'll be okay. I won't be afraid. And sometimes it's true. Except. Except when it isn't. Except when we assume certain truths about God being with us. When we assume that him being with us results in certain outcomes. If God is with me, then bad things won't happen. If God is with me, then I won't be afraid. If God is with me and bad things do happen, then they will work out in the end. If God is with me and bad things do happen and they don't work out, then at least I won't suffer. If God is with me now, then I'll be fine now. When we confuse what happens when we become dead and beyond with what happens before we become dead, we can set ourselves up for some profound disappointment. Because God protects people and the people who walk with him in this life from the things of this life. Except for when he doesn't. There's a powerful disconnect between those two realities that can cause us as Christians to have some strong anxiety from both guilt and shame. When we are being honest with our life experiences, almost all of us have recognized that faith and love and trust in God does not always end in a positive outcome in this life. We've seen enough to know that we can be happy in our view of being dead and what comes next. Even look forward to the what comes next part and still be miserable and terrified in the dying process. And it's this truth that causes the disconnect. Because in our very human way of seeing everything as binary, as either or, we think that if I truly have faith in Christ and believe that salvation is mine, I shouldn't be afraid while suffering in my dying or in suffering at all. And if I am afraid in my suffering and in my dying and I'm not happy about it, that I must not have faith in Christ and must not be sure in my salvation. And because this tension exists, we feel guilt and shame because we must be sinning and bad for feeling that way because a good Christian wouldn't. Except, except we have confused two very different realities and conflated them as though they're one and the same. We haven't separated the two truths that we aren't afraid of being dead, but we are afraid of dying. We aren't afraid of what happens after, but we are afraid of what suffering will be like now. And neither of those cancel out the other. Both of those things can be true at the same time, and it's okay to be happy about the after and also be terrified about everything that happens before. The faith in resurrection is real, but the suffering before it is also real. And to not deny the latter for the sake of the former is simply dishonest. For some people, though, the way they were raised and the theology they were taught has put all those things together and they struggle to separate them into their specific pieces. 
As a result, they struggle with guilt in the moments where those two events are coming together and create uncertainty about who they are in their faith because they're convinced they aren't allowed to experience both realities in an honest way. They think they should be one way and not the other. They shouldn't be unhappy. They shouldn't want to live when being dead is close. They shouldn't be afraid of how bad a bad experience might be. They shouldn't want to die when suffering is overwhelming. They shouldn't want to live when they know being dead is immediately inevitable. And the problem with all of those things is the word should. When we predetermine what should be, what we should feel, we become blind, we become blind to what is. In those moments, the truth is, I am unhappy. I do want to live when being dead is close. I am afraid of how bad a bad experience might be. I do want to die when the suffering is overwhelming. I do want to live even when I know being dead has become immediately inevitable. And so did Jesus. Matthew 26 has the story of Jesus praying in Gethsemane, starting in verse 39, it goes like this. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us go. My betrayer is at hand. In Luke, his version in chapter 22, starting with verse 41, adds this. And when he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus knew what was coming. He was already suffering in anticipation, and he knew his real suffering had not even begun yet. And he did not want to go through with it. But he was willing to go through it. But he did not want to go through it. There's a big difference between what we are willing to do and what we want to do. And there's no shame or sin in admitting that both of these realities are true. Like most of you, my adult life hasn't been some seamless string of joyful events that flow easy from the tap of existence and go down smooth like a hand-whipped chocolate sundae. I'm actually not sure if that's a thing. It should be. If you look closely at most people's lives, most people's lives, you realize they've been through some stuff. And I'm no different. And I'm not trying to say that my stuff has been worse than other people's stuff. 
I don't know everyone's story. What I can tell you is that the things I've experienced as an adult human has forced me to take a hard look at suffering and death and figure out what that means in my life. For example, I have so many old injuries competing for dominance within my body that some mornings I have to walk with a cane when I first get up so that the body parts that keep me upright malfunction so that when they malfunction and pain spikes through key areas, I don't immediately fall to the ground. It's not every morning or even most mornings, but that's part of the problem. I never know for sure which morning it's going to be. So every morning when I get up, it is very slowly and deliberate because I just don't know if today is the day that my first step will end with me on the floor in debilitating pain and profanity. That's right. Me on the floor using unpleasant language quite creatively because that's the level of sudden and surprising pain I'm talking about. Usually, if I'm careful, it's not a problem. And after the first few minutes of moving carefully and stretching so that everything moves back to their appropriate places, I can generally go through my day moving more or less like a normal person. You know, a normal person who has to consciously think through every movement they make all day long, every day. And that's after having done lots of dedicated physical therapy. That's problem number one. Then there's the cancer. I don't have it now, as far as I know, but I've had it twice. I've had the surgery to remove a child's fist-sized tumor from the superior vena cava up near my pancreas. The tumor itself caused me enough pain to make me reconsider my desire to stay alive. The surgery to remove it was one of those major abdominal ones where they cut you open from ribcage to pelvis, pull out all your organs, set them on a table, just so they can gain access to the thing they needed to find, remove it, hope they got it all, try to put all my organs back in the way they found them, Tetris style, sew and staple me back together, and then hope for the best. The amount of scar tissue messing up my abdomen's ability to function properly has been problematic all on its own. Then there was the radiation therapy, which made me incredibly nauseated at least twice a day, whether I wanted it or not, and also left me quite sterile. Then after four years of being cancer-free, finding out it had returned in a different place, going through four months of aggressive chemotherapy that left me with memory gaps, more than a bit of boldness, made me aggressively nauseated all day, every day, anemic, gave me lung damage, made me sometimes incontinent, and so weak that walking from the couch to the bathroom exhausted me so much, I'd have to sleep just to make it back. Just the act of standing up made my heart rate shoot to over 140 beats per minute. That's a lot for somebody my age. It was unendingly painful, indignant. I threw up at random times, but felt like I needed to all the time, and in general, was the worst experience of my life every day for over four months. I was only 32 and I could feel myself dying. I remember one moment at the end of my third month of chemo where I was convinced I couldn't do it anymore. I didn't think I would survive it, but more importantly, whether I would survive it or not, I knew I didn't even want to try. I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to exist as I was. I wasn't afraid of being dead. I was at peace with my status with God. 
but I wanted to live because life is a gift, and I like being alive. But I didn't want to suffer anymore. I wasn't sure I could handle any more than I had. I certainly didn't want to, but I was ready to be dead. But Nirma was not ready for me to be dead, so we talked. I decided to push a little farther as a compromise decision. I didn't want to, but I was willing to if I had to, and here I am. I know people who've had it way worse than me. I can't even imagine what that is like. It's just not a reality I can fathom. But I did have to find my place through every step of that death process and stare at it. I'm intimately familiar with its presence. So when a patient or family member or anyone struggles with tensions that exist within death, I remember those struggles. They aren't alone, and neither am I. So let's close with some important points. Point number one, this sermon is likely to not make you feel comfortable, or even end in a warm and fuzzy way. It's pretty dark. Sorry. Point number two, you are not a bad person just because you don't want to be dying or don't want to be dead. You can be at peace with being dead without wanting to be dead. It is okay to want to be alive for a while longer. It does not negate your faith in salvation. Wanting to be alive means that you are perfectly normal. You are not sinning if you want that. Point number three. You are not denying your salvation if the prospect and the process of dying terrifies you. If the idea of suffering scares you, congratulations, you're perfectly normal and not sinning. Point number four. Just because you are willing to do a thing does not mean you want to do a thing. Like suffering and being dead, for example. This makes you perfectly normal, and you are not sinning by feeling this way. Yay. To understand death and to deal with death in our own life absolutely requires us to be honest on what seems like a very uncomfortable level. We have to be honest about what we believe and accept it. We have to be honest about how awful the whole process might be and accept that. Then, once we accept both of those things and let those truths inform us, we have to decide what we're going to do about those things. You can, when the moment comes, accept that you are going to be dead and be at peace with what that means for you. You can, at the same time, when the moment comes, accept that the process is unpleasant and you'd rather not have to go through it. Then, you can accept that you are willing to go through it all when there's no other path. There's no fluffy conclusion to this topic. There's so much more that could be said, but this is the reality of death. It is not romantic. It's not fun. But all the parts of death are true. When it's your turn in the experience of death, I hope you are not alone. I hope that you don't suffer. But if you do, I hope it's brief and quick. I hope you can be honest about your experience and in doing so, find some level of peace within it. And most of all, I hope you know you are loved by God and that he has saved you and that your death will not be the end because it's the only good news I can give you. I hope that you have hope because you have no reason not to.